0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Um, If you're watching and and worshiping with us from home, thank you. Thank you for prioritizing worshiping with the church during this morning. And uh, very glad to have you online as well this morning. This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're in a series on the unity that we have in the church. And I want to be real clear we're not just trying to fabricate a unity. trying to just, you know, try to rally the troops during divided times and and come together. This is reality. This is the reality that we have in Christ. And it's the reality that God's word puts forward of what is our unity in Christ. So, it's the real substance. So, the other things that sometimes we say are really what unite us really don't and really isn't the substance of our unity. But when we look at Ephesians chapter one and we see that we have a father like no other, that reality truly unifies us, it, it transforms us because it's truth. Additionally, when we looked at chapter 2 and we saw that we have a faith like no other, and we looked at the gospel, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God in His grace made us alive together with Christ. That's a faith that can unify us unlike anything else. And we even looked and considered how it unifies us across national lines. That speaking about um, brothers and sisters in the country of Lesotho in Africa, and how we've been united with them in a real tangible faith, makes us this united family. And so today, we then turn to chapter three, and what we're going to see is that we, through Christ, have a family like no other. We have a family like no other, and it really stems from this, that we have a father like no other. One of the great joys over the last few years of my life was a new friendship, that I began right at the beginning of going to Trinity Baptist Church in Lake Charles, Louisiana. The man was 72 years old, had done his career as a physician, but had been active in his church and had been very, very, very focused on doing medical missions around the world. His name was Dr. Richard Landry, and at the time, he was serving as the chairman of the missions committee, and myself, as the missions pastor at Trinity, was going to be working closely with he and his committee as we planned and as we prayerfully considered what was ahead, and so every Wednesday, I put it on my calendar to go over at 10 a.m. to Dr. Landry's house, where we would sit in his living room, and then every Wednesday, without fail, We then gathered around his coffee table in his living room, knelt down, and prayed. As I began to get to know Dr. Landry, I learned that he had four daughters, two of whom were still living in Lake Charles, and two of whom had moved away. And so I became friends with with his his daughters and with their husbands. And one of those those guys is named Keith Lechtenberg. And I began to learn through Keith about Dr. Landry and about his family life and how, for years, that's how he had become to to, to be a true follower of Christ and began to understand what it was to pray. Was that even as he began dating his daughter daughter, Wendy, they would gather around that coffee table and pray. And then as I got to know the girls, I learned that throughout their childhood, throughout their life, that that coffee table had been a sacred grounds that they would gather around and pray. And then right before we moved back to New Orleans, having lunch with Wendy and Keith, after sitting at their dining room table and having lunch, we then stopped and went to the coffee table in their living room. And we knelt down and we prayed. You see, what I learned about Dr. Landry was that this was a father like no other. I mean, like, he was truly an exemplar dad and husband. And the way that he had done life had really generated this this tradition, if you will, of of praying and of gathering in this specific place, a posture in the living room, the family room, to gather around and pray. And that that characteristic of prayer is what marked this family that was a family really like no other that I had been around. And as I look at the pages of Scripture today, and we look at Ephesians chapter 3, what I see is that our Heavenly Father, who is a Father like no other, again and again and again and again and again and again is calling us to the living room as His children to bow down and spend time with Him in prayer. And we see it again right here in this passage where God the Father communicating with us as his children in the church is bringing us to the coffee table, if you will, and helping us to kneel down. I mean, look, it says in verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father to come and to gather around as a family and to pray. And so with a prayerful heart, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. And I'm going to read all of chapter three this morning, and we're really going to focus in on verses 14 through 21 this morning hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you? The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now Revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I, Paul, I kneel before the the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you, our Father like no other, is inviting us to be a family that prays like no other. So Lord, please cultivate in us that sort of habit of coming together corporately to seek your face and to pray according to your word so that we can truly experience what it is to be a family like no other. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. A family like no other. I want you to look back at Ephesians 3 6 to see this. This is the real substance of that family unity that we share. Look what he says. And you got to understand a little bit of the context to know that. Paul, a Jew by birth and and a Jew by upbringing, was now experiencing this revelation from Jesus Christ that, verse 6, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body. So not two parts, but of the same body, partners in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. And so this is important for us to see that this is the substance of our unity as the family. That in Christ, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your race, regardless of your country of origin, regardless of who your mom and dad or your grandparents are, regardless of any distinction that could be made, he says that the Gentiles, speaking to all people all over, are co-heirs, members of the same body, partners of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so because we see the substance of, of what our family is, then when we look down to verse 15, really start back at verse 14, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, God has control over all families. His rule and reign knows no boundaries, but uniquely in his family, there ought to be the evidence that we are co-heirs that we are members of the same body, that we are partners in the promises in Christ Jesus. Because he has sovereign control over all families, but in his family it ought to be obvious these characteristics. So as we look at that reality of who we are, we then immediately are invited by Paul. And it's kind of funny because this actually makes me feel better. If you look at verse one and then you look at verse 14, they start with the same thing. Paul says, for this reason in verse one, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then in my Bible, there's a little line. It's kind of like Paul was like, uh, let me... Let me hop off of that for a second. And then verse 14, he's like, let me come back to it. For this reason, and he picks up right where he was. So again, remember where we were last week, the substance of our faith. That was what chapter two was all about. And so he says, for that reason, based on the faith that we share in Christ Jesus. And he kind of expounds it a little bit to be sure that they understand just how significant it is. And then he hops back in right here in verse 14 into calling us as a family to prayer. And so in that same spirit, I want to go ahead and let you know that one of the things I enjoyed most over these last couple of months with you, First Baptist, was was when on January 20th, we spent a day in prayer. And so we're going to begin doing that again, starting Wednesday, March 17th. If you want to write that down, put it on your calendar, we'll be putting out more information in the next couple of weeks about that. But it's going to be a day of prayer where we'll have corporate times of coming here into the sanctuary to be able to spend time in prayer. And the content of our prayer is going to be this passage, verses 14 through 21. We're going to be praying God's word because there's no healthier way for us to pray than to pray God's word. So I invite you on March 17th to come and to join us either at 7 a.m., at 12 p.m., or 7 p.m. And the services will all be identical, but it'll be a time for us on a regular basis on the third Wednesday of every month to begin to pray together as a church so that more and more we're coming to the living room and getting around the coffee table together. So hopping back into this prayer, I want us to see and put a couple of handles on the way that we as a family are to pray for one another. You see, I'm convinced that part of the health that I saw in Dr. Landry's family, among his daughters, among his son-in-laws, among his grandchildren— all of these things was because there's something that happens. Stormy O'Martin, you know, talks about this when and whenever she talks about the power of a praying wife or the power of a praying husband, and and, and these kind of books that she's talked about. There's something that happens when you gather around with one another and pray for each other. It, it, the walls start to kind of come down. When, when you're praying for, for, for good in one another's lives and you hear each other praying for good in one another's lives, it has a way of bringing you together and strengthening the family. I encourage you to do this both in a private context at home in your marriages or over your children as a family, but corporately, that's what Paul is doing. He's speaking to us as the family of God to say, come and pray together. So what's the content of our prayer? Well, we look back at verse 14 and he says, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. I pray, and here's comes the content, verse 16. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. So the first aspect of the prayer that we're to pray, we're gonna see three parts that are kind of manifest here in this text. The first is this, spirit sustained power. Spirit sustained power. So what we're looking at this morning, what we're being trained in is how we, First Baptist New Orleans, are going to pray for one another. And so what we're going to be found praying, first of all, for one another, joining with the Apostle Paul, is that in the body there will be spirit sustained. In other words, it's not just our endurance. It's not just the, 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 the best among us or anything, but it comes from the spirit. Spirit sustained power. But immediately when I say the word power, a lot of things come to mind. In a room this big, there's a lot of thoughts about what power is. How many of you guys remember? This is kind of harkening back to the 90s the power team. Anybody get to see the power team that would travel around? I've got a few hands going up. Let me tell you about the power team. The power team was a group of bodybuilders, okay, that were believers that would come and do evangelistic events at churches where they would come in and do some of the craziest stuff you've ever seen happen. I mean, these are men that would come in and would tear a, a telephone book in half. Okay. Now for you that don't know what a telephone book is back, (laughs) just kidding. Um, so they would do things like that. They would put duct tape around their wrists and then handcuff and then just pop the handcuffs and all that. But the thing that stuck out to me the most, because they kind of really built it up. I don't know if anybody else remember this one. They would, they would, explode a whoopee cushion, okay? Um, Essentially is what they would do, where they would blow on it, and the whole time they're telling you, if he lets the air back in, it'll explode his lungs. So you're sitting there, and they're like, pray for him, pray for him, pray for power, pray for power. And I'm like, we're about to watch a man die on the stage, you know, from a whoopee cushion exploding his lungs. I'm like, this is awesome, you know? Like, so I was a quintessential teenager enjoying the power team, okay? Now, listen, please don't hear me like, you know, just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They would share the gospel, okay? They would do that. But I think inadvertently what it kind of communicated was that sense that power was this incredible strength to do these human feats, snapping, you know, handcuffs and blowing up whoopee cushions, you know, with your lungs and stuff like that. And and really, is that what it's communicating? Is that what we see when we look at the Bible of how power, Spirit-sustained power, was manifest, I want to show you an example that I think is one of the, the strongest examples of what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to manifest that power of the Spirit. I want you to turn with me, holding your place right here at Ephesians 3, over to Acts chapter 7. And we're going to be turning back over to Acts a few times, because I think Acts, Acts really details, it describes so much that is a positive example for the church throughout all of of history. And so today I want us to turn first to Acts chapter 7. And rather than reading the whole chapter, I want to tell you that it's about a man named Stephen. Stephen was one of the seven in chapter 6 that was chosen to help deal with a situation that had come up in the church of, of widows, some of the widows being neglected in the distribution of food. And so this was a man that was determined by the apostles and by the church to be full of the Spirit. And so this man then stands up and delivers one of the longest sermons that we have recorded in the entire Bible. It's an incredible example of exposition of the Old Testament, of being able to see Christ in the Old Testament, how it all ultimately points to him. But then at the end, his audience does not appreciate his sermon. And instead, picking up in verse 54, of Acts chapter 7, what we read is this, when they, the crowd, heard these things, they were enraged. And gnashing their teeth at him, Stephen, here it is, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, they yelled, at the top of their voices and covered their ears, and together they rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. That doesn't mean throwing small stones. That's big ones that would ultimately take his life. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who would go on to become Paul, who is writing the letter to Ephesus, this, this letter that we're reading right now, Ephesians. While they were stoning Stephen, and this is what I want us to focus on, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In verse 60, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. My prayer for us. Is that we will experience a spirit sustained power to forgive. A spirit sustained power to forgive. That's power. When you can forgive and call on the Lord to forgive someone who is murdering you, that's power. When someone has disparaged you on Facebook or Instagram or maybe in a memo or an email and you forgive them and you no longer hold it against them, that's power. This confronts me. When when you're able to look at someone who has treated you wrongly and say, I forgive you and I bless you, and then call upon the name of the Lord to bless that person and no longer hold their sins against them, that is power. And right now, in a divided nation and in a divided church, we need the Spirit of God to manifest that power to bring about forgiveness. And notice, there wasn't one person in the crowd that was asking for forgiveness. It wasn't dependent on them saying, sorry, Stephen, for what we're doing. His forgiveness was sustained by a power that came into him from above. And that's why God gets the glory in Stephen's life. And if God's gonna get the glory in our lives, and brothers and sisters, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. And my prayer in these days where the family is often pretty critical and pretty harsh with one another. And I'm speaking to us as the church that this would be a time where we manifest that the power of the Spirit is seen in forgiveness as well. Secondly, moving down through the passage After Paul says, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, he then says in verse 17, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Faith without works is dead. That's what James says. And what we see demonstrated In the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, is that faith without works is dead. So, what do we see in the book of Acts? We see faith at work. And I want you to hold your place again for a moment and turn over to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, the situation in which we find ourselves, and we're gonna begin looking at verse 34 of Acts chapter 10, but leading up to it is Peter, one of the 12 disciples, apostles of Jesus, who is now a leader in the church, who is one who is trusted, who is looked to, but who still is needing God to make clear some things about the relationship that God desires to have with the Gentiles. So Peter, during a customary time of prayer, sees a vision a sheet being lowered down from heaven that has all of these animals that have been declared unclean in the Old Testament, and God speaking to him saying, "Peter, go kill and eat." Well, Peter, being a good Jew, says, "Lord, I'd never do this. I would never allow something um, un- unclean to-, to enter my mouth." And-, and and God says, "What I've declared clean, don't declare unclean." And so he wakes up from this, and right about this time, a messenger comes. And there's a man named Cornelius who is now requesting Peter to come, and I'm kind of expediting the story here, to come to him. Well, Cornelius is a Gentile. And there's some customary rules about entering into a a Gentile's home and maybe sharing a meal with Gentiles. And so you fast forward through this story of Peter having seen this vision from God and then being called to come to this home of one named Cornelius and then going to his home and sharing the gospel and then picking up in verse verse 34, Peter said, began to speak. He says, now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both, Jude- in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that through his name everyone who believes in him, in other words, places faith in him, receives forgiveness of sins. Well, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. And then Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked for him to stay with them a few days. You see, what we see there in that Christ-abiding faith, when when Paul is encouraging them and saying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, what he was constantly contending with in the early church were divisions. We see it in many of his letters. We we see when he's writing to the church at Galatia, and he's writing in Galatians, that he's speaking to a church that is allowing these little things to come back in and begin to separate them. Even Peter, of whom we're reading right now, kind of began to play to the separation of Jew and Gentile in the church, of kind of separating during mealtimes. And Paul calls him out in Galatians. And so we see these sort of things being dealt with. And so we know that what Paul has in mind when he's praying and he's saying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith is that this faith like no other will transform the family in a way that nothing else can. So what does it look like today? Because I don't know many people that are Jewish in their heritage and have trouble dining with Gentiles or spending time. So what does it look like down through the years for us as the people of God to experience division? Well, I want to share with you about a woman named Harriet Jacobs, born in 1813, died in 1897, who was the first enslaved African-American woman to write an autobiography. And one of the things that she opens with in her autobiography is this. In the beginning of her narrative, Jacobs speaks about how kind her first mistress treated her and how because of this great kindness, she had great hopes that her mistress would free her upon her death. However, when the mistress's will is read, Jacobs finds out that her owner did not free her, but but bequeathed her to her sister's child. Upon this profound disappointment, Jacobs makes some keen observations. And listen to this. Listen, listen how it happens. My mistress had taught me the precepts of God's word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them. But I was her slave, and I suppose she did not recognize me as her neighbor. I would give much to blot out from my memory the one great wrong. As a child, I loved my mistress, and looking back on the happy days I spent with her, I try to think with less bitterness of this act of injustice. While I was with her, she taught me to read and spell, for this privilege which so rarely falls to the lot of a slave, I bless her memory. These insightful comments by Jacobs underline one of the evils of slavery. The enslaved are taught the precepts of God orally from Scripture, and at the same time are taught through actions of slaveholders that some precepts do not apply to them. I don't think that many in those days perhaps maintain the consciousness of some of their actions that we are able to look now with clarity and see. But that serves as a caution to us, doesn't it? that there are going to be things of our actions today that perhaps we're not thinking about very clearly, but a generation or two from now or three or four we will look back with greater clarity on what we had muddied, of what we had made unclear that was so clear in God's Word. You see, the Scriptures were clear for that mistress who remains unnamed. And Harriet Jacob's, lays down very clearly that even though she was taught the Word of God, she was denied the Word of God, experiencing it. And so, as a faith family, we come into critical days where it is imperative that in our Bible study groups, please hear me, I'm making a a desperate appeal, that in your Bible study groups, Like I experienced last week in one of the classes, of going through the Word of God and wrestling and really considering and taking the verses and turning them around and mulling them over and really contemplating are we living out God's Word? Is it really transforming this family? Are there blind spots that we're not considering? This is the importance of being in a Bible study. This is the importance of having conversations because right now we're not having much of a conversation. I'm just gonna be honest. I'm speaking to you and you're being very gracious and listening to me, but it's not a conversation where we can go back and forth in a dialogue. But that aspect of conversation is important in the growth of a believer. And so I encourage us as a church that as we pray as we pray, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that that faith would translate into a Christ-abiding faith to go. To go. To go to the ends of the earth. To not allow one single barrier to separate us in the body of Christ. That we will be the people of God willing to go to anyone to seek reconciliation that we will be the believers the family of God that demonstrates that this faith is a faith that works it works it works into true unity it works itself out in acts of good works that Ephesians chapter 1 verse chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do that this is a robust living, true, life-transforming faith. And so as we pray, we pray with a heart to go and to demonstrate, just as our brother in the video earlier has gone to New Orleans East to live the gospel in a community that needs the gospel, that we will do that every single day in the neighborhoods where we live all across this city, that we will do that in the workplaces where we go all across this city that we will do that in the school, students, and that you will live your faith when you go across this city. And so I thank God for the example of Harriet Jacobs, but I also receive her warning. And then finally, what we see, we see that we are praying for a spirit-sustained power. We are praying for Christ-abiding faith. And then finally, what Paul calls us to pray is for a God-glorifying comprehension of his love, Look at it in verse 17 in the second half of the verse. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever, amen. I want you to turn with me while holding your place one more time back to to Acts chapter two. And I want us to catch a glimpse of what this looked like in the early church. For the church to be experiencing the height and depth and width of God's love. Looking at chapter 2, verse 42, hear this description of the early church. It says, "...they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer." Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And then I want you to turn over to chapter 4 and begin in verse 32. It's another similar description of the early church. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And then this was then distributed to each person as any had need. So turn back and consider for a moment that as we pray and we say, God, we want to glorify you. We want to comprehend the width and the depth. We want to... Comprehend the height and the and the and the length of your love. And we want to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. That the description that we then receive in Acts chapter two and acts chapter four is this the church coming together with God's word and of coming together with one another in homes, of sharing life together. In New Orleans, meeting for coffee, having a lunch, having a breakfast, inviting somebody over on the weekend for a crawfish boil. It it looks a lot like doing stuff together as the body of Christ on a daily basis. Being together, breaking bread, having meals. And what we kind of glean In the New Testament, is that as they came together and they they spent time in intentional worship, encouraging each other with the scriptures and considering the apostles' teaching, which is the Word of God, that they would then stop in these moments together and they would have an intentional moment of remembering how the family came to exist. And the family came to exist only by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how it all came into existence. And that reality brought them back together. I'm thankful for these little individual packets that we're able to distribute and do these things. But some of the imagery has been lost, I'm just going to tell you. You see, part of the imagery that's been lost is this sense of of just one table. I want you to just imagine for a moment that, that right now all of us would come to one table. I remember growing up that there was the kids' table and there was the adult table. And you couldn't wait to graduate to the adult table. I mean, it was just like the coveted seat at the adult table. And I remember the first time at the adult table getting to go and to be there with the adults Jesus has invited every one of you to his table. And then at his table, there's not leftovers. There's not, you only get a little bit. No, there's one loaf and there's one cup. And it is given to all. And there's enough for everyone. It's just like when Jesus fed the 5,000, there was more than enough. More than enough. And so when we come to the table, there's all of this imagery that meets us right here at this one table with this one loaf and this one cup because it's only one Savior who gave His life for us. And so when we take this bread... We remember the words from Matthew chapter 26 that says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And so we, the church, do this in remembrance of him. Take the bread. And then he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we do this church in remembrance of him, take and drink. There's a simplicity to it, right? body given. His blood shed for the forgiveness of all. It's an amazing reality. And family, this is our substance. The body and blood of Jesus. This points to the reality of a Savior who died to make us one People so that, as we read in Ephesians, that we, together with the saints, would be considered to be co-heirs with Christ. Members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You've heard the gospel today. But today, in this moment, we're gonna all stand in this moment to sing a song of praise to Jesus. I invite you to stand. But if you're here today, and this message, this gospel, which means good news, is something that has yet to change your life, I invite you to come and to begin a conversation of looking at God's word together to consider this gospel truth. You come as God leads. We'll be here to pray for you, but let us worship in song.